To be honest, I never expected to be the one to do, to do the write-up on, uh, on the paper that was feared by so many uh, for so much of the, of the 20th century. I had very mixed feelings uh, about truth, having worked there as a reporter through its final, what I'd even say, putrefying years in the capital. In fact, as, as I will relate today, working there was so harrowing that becoming its historian uh, practically involved going into what I'd call recovered memory syndrome. <laughs> Sorry, recovered memory therapy. There's a difference. Um, it's quite hard to think uh, that this crude Australian import was in its day an authentic print giant. Within a few years of its 1905 launch here in the capital, it was already boasting the largest circulation in the, in the Dominion. By mid-century, it claimed a readership of a million at a time when the population was just nudging two and a half million. So I think it would be fair to say that one in two households, not ours, <laughs> took the paper. How many households here, when you were growing up, took truth? Did Really? There's a few of you. Oh, I promise not to tell. Um, yeah, because as one commentator said, you could never find anyone who admitted reading it. And if they did, it was only for the excellent recipes. The, the prize-winning recipes and the business pages, which were very good. Yet in its heyday, the 1920s to the 1970s, truth was orchestrating and shaping public opinion in the same way that TV news shows like Close Up and Campbell Live do today. And as, as, as Jamie, Jamie Belich has said, truth really was the closest thing to a national newspaper New Zealand ever had. I remember well Bromondelli and, and Gavin encouraging me in the 1990s to pursue its history. Gavin and co are among the historians who've, who have increasingly come to see it as a uniquely rich secondary source. And for me, writing Truth's history would prove to be a fascinating and ultimately rewarding uh, exercise. And I would find that over 75 years, Truth had been a series of quite different newspapers. Born an unashamed revolutionary socialist, it grew to be a labour-hearted conservative through a long middle age, and then turning into a white-hot anti-communist in its dotage. And then it went off to Auckland and became a sex comic. <laughs> the core diet of sensation, sport, divorces, and random muckraking would never change. And like similar papers overseas, there was a serious and often overlooked political and consumer advocacy role in truth. Today, I want to talk about the process of reading and reconstructing an institution weighed down with contention. To help me do this, I plan to retrace three personal journeys with truth over three decades. First, I'll look at my time as a journalist with the paper after 1977. Second, I'll explore a secondary encounter a decade later, rediscovering truth as an essential secondary source in researching and writing New Zealand history. Lastly, I'll address my third voyage around truth, this time as its historian. As I say, truth was never a paper that I would have picked up as a university dropout from a leafy suburb. So it came as a shock 
when in 1977 I went down to grimy Garrett Street off Cuba Street. Some of you know Garrett? Yeah. Bit of a sleazy little enclave. Um, I, was, I was employed as a proofreader, then a reporter in its smoke-filled offices. And what I found there was this amazing mix of newspaper factory and right-wing hothouse. I arrived just as hot metal typesetting was in its death throes after a century and a half. And truth itself was, was facing plummeting circulation, having been sold in 1970 to independent newspapers, limited now Fairfax, publishers of the Dom. Lawyer Jimmy Dunn, the former proprietor, chairman, and mysterious censor, was in his office, totally blind and dying of emphysema. Things were changing by 1977. Sunday papers, talkback radio, and television had plundered Truth's editorial, technical, and business techniques. As the media world went tabloid, rival media stole the spice, the punch, and populism that had been the guts of Truth for three profitable quarters of a century. Truth was in its shrill and reactionary dotage. Every week, middle-aged white men in shirt sleeves, and they were men, pieced together what embodied in newsprint the conservative values of Prime Minister Robert Muldoon. His Rob Says column, remember Rob Says, was a dominant feature of the paper and was often quoted elsewhere. The Weekly was a holdout for conservative World War II era values, serving as an enforcer to ensure those values were adhered to. And just like Muldoon, truth still could and did destroy people and institutions with a single smear story. I watched in horror and some amazement from my desk as my editor, Russell Galt, Russell Samuel Galt, and chief reporter Tony Dominic championed this activity. Galt was a tall, boyish figure. I call him a teddy bear with a slashing pen and a crazed streak of cold warrior. He'd honed his skills in the jungles of Borneo, writing black propaganda for the British, the British military. And I watched the way Galt carelessly and casually dispatched enemies du jour. Unions, students, commos, all lumped together as stirrers. Now, as a junior reporter, I was able to bring questionable deeds to public attention. I exposed wrongdoings by rip-off merchants and religious charlatans. I did a lot of work on the Unification Church. The Moonies. I think I wrote, the mad Moonies might be mellowing. <laughs> but as a reporter, I also had to do jobs on people. I'll, I'll, this is one that, um, from, yeah, this is one from 1978. Headlined, Spud King Jim's Hot Potato. <laughs> Front page, guys. Very proud of that. No byline, though. Damn. Would-be MP Jim Bull, the spud king of Rangitiki, has left himself holding a political hot potato. The top-seeded <laughs> national by-election candidate may have blighted his chances by his attitude <laughs> to regional development. He has left himself open to a roasting. The subs added that in. 
from his opponent by saying he supports the development of industry in regional and rural towns to provide jobs. Only last year, a company of which Mr. Bull was a director and major shareholder bought up an ice cream factory in Waipukarau, Peter Pan. A subsidiary company peeled off the refrigerated trucks it had wanted, mashed... <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> mashed the ice cream business and 72 workers had to cash in their chips. <laughs> he didn't get to be the MP. <laughs> The newsroom was a wretched place. Many of my colleagues privately loathed these attack dog tactics. I and mean, that one's fairly mild, really, quite benign as they go. They saw Galt as basically mad. And ironically, these journalists would often be the, most, the ones who are the most adept at crafting the most sulfurous and alliterative headlines. To take the truth shilling had always been to don the, the golden handcuffs. For three quarters of a century, its journalists enjoyed a comparatively light workload based on weekly as opposed to daily deadlines. In the 1920s, my hero, the wonderful Iris Wilkinson, better known as Robin Hyde, briefly became a truth journalist. She'd started at the Dominion and became the first woman in the press gallery. She noted when she joined Truth, there's an easygoing attitude on the paper. Tomorrow will do, which is not like the Dominion's daily life. And then there was the 12.5% odium money that supplemented what were already some of the fattest pay packets in local journalism. It was clear that many staff had become hooked on the pay and weekly deadlines and were unable or un unwilling to leave. Their profound ambivalence, even hatred towards people like Galt, made for a toxic and conflicted workplace. Some were happy being Muldoon's megaphone, but for others our hearts sank as we opened the paper to see yet another attack on Maori land campaigners, peace groups and critics of apartheid. Invariably, these smears, routinely generated from official sources within the bureaucracy, would be placed next to Busty Bess from Bishopsgate. The lax working conditions gave Truth staff more time to pursue what might be termed other interests. In his recent biography, uh, Legendarily Grizzled, truth photographer Peter Bush gets into the subject. He notes how in the 70s, the time I was there, Galt and Dominic became disciples of property magnate Bob Jones. I'll read, uh, and, and I quote, Inspired by Bob's philosophy that anyone can become a millionaire if they get off their ass, they bought and rented out some hovels in Upper Cuba Street. The hypocrisy of these two in being simultaneously slum landlords and self-styled campaigners against racketeers and exploiters of the little people was simply breathtaking. Bushy, as he's known, too found time to build his reputation as the official all-black photographer and stringer extraordinaire, despite being a full-time staffer. An annoyed Galt tried and failed to sack him. Bushy the only photographer in the Wellington office always grumbled when I dared ask him to snap a pic for one of my stories. I've got to say nothing much had changed 30 years later when I came to write the Truth History. Keen to get hold of images taken when he worked for Truth, I wooed Bushy by taking him to Logan Brown for lunch. I offered him hundreds of dollars of my own money to get pictures for the book, but Bushy was still too busy to provide me with a single photo from his collections.
which seriously did make things really hard, I have to say. Not that Bushy was the only staff member pursuing other interests. The current editor of the Southland Times is fondly remembered for his extracurricular activities while full-time Dunedin correspondent. The story goes that, <laughs> that he put a request through to Wellington for a car to replace the office mini, stating that as part of his news catchment area, he needed a car for longish runs. Then it emerged that he was doing a daily delivery run for the ODT. <laughs> in central Otago. And couldn't fit all the papers into the mini. <laughs> Joking aside, I was never a happy camper at Truth. I came to dread returning to the office after weekends. After 18 months, uh, I left for England and worked on provincial papers. It restored my self-respect. This was real journalism. I returned to New Zealand determined never to, to darken Truth's door again, then failed to get the job on a daily that I wanted. So I rejoined the paper and took a job as entertainment editor, responsible for TV, cinema and music coverage. I was able mostly to duck the, the, the political showdown that was darkening in the early 80s. The 1981 tour was approaching and Truth Under Galt became its unqualified cheerleader. His pro-tour stand was typical of the paper's polarising instincts at a time when Muldoon's chief role seemed to be polariser-in-chief. Hauled in to report on the second test at Athletic Park, I spotted a foam-flecked galt after the game. There was my editor screaming abuse from the footpath at marching protesters on Adelaide Road. I walked with the protesters, my head bowed, my notebook tucked away. By the time I left the paper for the second time at the start of 82, I never wanted to think about truth again. I had come to understand, as Robin Hyde said in 1928, that being part of truth stained. This would become clearer when I came to write its, its biography. In 1985, I meanwhile got to experience firsthand the experience of being on the wrong end of a tabloid expose. Health Minister Michael Bassett had just hired me as his press secretary. The Sunday News then revealed that the minister's new staffer had been in jail in 1976 for narcotics offences. I'll never forget the loneliness of a Sunday morning walk to the dairy to read its sensational account, splashed all over its front page. The only trouble was I couldn't have written it better myself. <laughs> I now want to talk about truth as a source in researching and writing New Zealand history. Within a decade of leaving the paper, I found myself poring over microfilm back issues of the, in the Turnbull reading room. When it came to research into 1950s New Zealand, truth proved an indispensable secondary source. It really was the equivalent of a Sunday paper. They were illegal here until 1965, as we know. But Truth was published on a Tuesday. And I found Truth then a totally different paper from the one that I had worked for. In the 1950s, Truth was still in its blue-collar conservative phase. For one thing, the closely ogled fixture on page three was not Busty Bess, but the fruit and vegetable prices in the four main centres. Truth really was reflecting the interests of the people living on Struggle Street, which is why its boast of a million readers during the 1950s and early 60s was probably accurate. In the essay Fretful Sleepers, Bill Pearson called Truth one of the papers that seems to exist for no other purpose than to enforce conformity. But that was only part of the story. When Pearson wrote that in 1952, Truth gave readers the weekly dose of sensation, 
sport recipes for ox cheek with golden sauce, and of course the divorces. But I kept coming across hard-hitting stories on housing, racism, and the environment, stories I'd usually only seen in the communist people's voice. Truth weighed into the policy debates of the day, uh, stories carefully distilled and often thoughtful, packed with the opinions of ministers and officials. It crusaded against bureaucracy and state snooping, devoting pages to Kiwis getting a raw deal. As Brian Edwards later confirmed, in the days before Fair Go, people seeking redress from bad businesses went to truth. A long-running campaign in 1954, for example, led to the resignation of a police commissioner accused of phone tapping and corruption, Compton. Truth, of course, could be contradictory and inconsistent. One minute, an anti-communist crusader and opponent of state control. Next minute, a, a proponent of social justice and champion of a downtrodden. But I think a lot of, of media institutions are like that. My 1993 book, All Shook Up, is a work examining ideological and sexual paranoia <laughs> in the 1950s. And it, I've got to say it owes a great debt to truth, uh, this mid-century, middle-aged truth. It gave this researcher um, with, with what is the very best of what a good newspaper can offer, a glimpse of a society talking to itself. In its pages, in Truth's pages, and particularly its Lonely Hearts column, Ask Lynn Carroll, were some of the upheavals, the fracture lines of the post-war years, our certainties, our fears, and our prejudices. I was just struck, stunned by the vitality and expressiveness of Truth's writing, the boldness and sweep of its opinions, and the way it was, to paraphrase Seddon, playing New Zealand like a piano. A series of interviews confirmed that politicians privately acknowledged Truth as our national antennae, an unofficial moderator of popular opinion. And this was confirmed to me by George Bryant, who was a long-time backroom government information officer who really confirmed its extraordinary power. Bryant told me, it was the first thing we did on a Tuesday, all the, all the information officers working for government, first thing we did on a Tuesday, go out and get truth, buy several copies, go through it with a tooth comb, see what it was saying and report to the ministers. Bryant also said it was a paper you feared if you were in public life and you, you did the wrong thing. As part of my research for this, for this book, All Shook Up, I examined coverage of two juvenile delinquency murders in 1955. These were killings that had led to the execution by hanging of their perpetrators to young people. In 1950, an, a tough-minded national administration re, had reintroduced capital punishment. During 19, 1955, four executions took place in Mount Eden. Shocked by the state's readiness to hang, Truth drew a line. Jack Marshall, meanwhile, kept directing public servants to string up these people. Journalists were allowed to attend hangings and report on them, but the reports were typically brief and superficial. Truth editor Ted Webber decided to report the full details of an execution and all its ghastliness. The paper's conscious decision to give readers a true picture of state-sanctioned execution was hugely influential. I'll just read you a little bit out of it. It was written by Jack Young, who I think ended up going to the Dom. And Jack was someone who was in, in, in journalism for a long time. Was, like a lot of journalists, he spent some time on truth and also worked, and worked elsewhere. Two minutes and seven seconds before seven o'clock, Black, this was the man, the young man, who was, who was, he was 19, left the condemned cell in, in Mount Eden. 
jail, shepherded by the four wardens of the death watch. Black did not walk bravely or imperturbably or in any other way to the scaffold. As they all do, he shuffled. He shuffled because the movements of his body was harnessed. His arms at the elbows were shackled to his body with broad leather straps. His crossed hands were strapped in front of him and his legs were pinioned above the knee. Death comes to men in many forms. Black met death at the top of the stairs in the shape of a chunky figure dressed as if for a fishing expedition on a stormy day. This was the hangman. He wore a felt hat pulled down low over his eyes. To hide his eyes, he wore sunglasses. His chin was sunk in the collar of a long top coat, buttoned all the way up to the front. This garish figure, waiting at the back of the platform, looked ludicrously out of touch, like an actor in some fifth-rate melodrama. He was properly clothed. So long as he is disguised, the hangman may wear what he chooses. There is no formal dress for the occasion. One New Zealand hangman favoured a skin-tight Superman black costume. Black looked down, wished everyone a happy Christmas and a prosperous New Year. The waters closed around him. They pinioned his ankles, drew the noose down over his neck and placed a white hood over his head. The waters moved away from Black. He stood alone for a moment. The sheriff raised his hand, carrying the warrant of execution. Death in dark glasses performed his office. Black was no longer there. The white rope was taut. The rope oscillated like a leisurely pendulum. Pretty extraordinary piece of writing. Um, according to, um, to, to capital punishment historian Pauline Engel, uh, the story helped bring about this, the, the, the subsequent decision to abandon capital punishment. The truth had that power. I also explored in detail truth's role as an outlet for Cold War propaganda. Week after week, truth mounted attacks on left-wingers involved in peace activities, for example. A range of, of official agencies, including a rump of the tourism, tourism and publicity department, where George Bryant uh, worked, prepared this material. It was then passed on to Truth and prominently featured. One US embassy official noted in a cable home, Truth carries more directly anti-communist material than in any other publication in the country. I later learnt that it was during this era that Truth established deep and enduring links with the New Zealand Security Intelligence Service. More than a decade passed after writing All Shook Up. I chatted to colleagues about writing a Truth history I casually amassed a, a file of documents and clippings relating to the paper. The weekly, meanwhile, had become a national joke. The house magazine of the sex industry, much to the shame of Fairfax executives. It was when I learnt that half a century of truth board minutes of board minute books had been deposited at Turnbull that I could see the spine of a book project. And I, I want to turn now to the writing of the truth history. In 2008, I decided to apply um, for the National Library Research Fellowship. My application spoke of exploring truth's role in shaping 20th century society, press, and popular culture. To my amazement, I succeeded. I decided to restrict my project to, the, to its time in the capital, 1906 to 1982. I was interested in the paper's interactions with Parliament, 
and the bureaucracy in particular, a core element of truth which was dropped after the move north. But it was immediately clear that many people over 40 saw my project differently from the legitimate and scholarly exercise that National Library and I did. <laughs> I remember the giggles of a couple of middle-aged chaps one day in the lift as it emerged that I was writing about truth. Page three girls, mate, mate, page three girls. The mix of delight, envy and horror in their eyes stays with me. <laughs> A similar, a similar response would occur a thousand times over the next two years. My, my, own, my own brother said to me, why are you bothering to write about that scuzzy old rag you used to work for? I began by reading back issues and had devoured most of the first quarter century on microfilm just at the time they were released on papers past. So <laughs> I knew what was in them. <laughs> I looked closely at the historiography of the local press, but was often disappointed. In 1958, for example, Guy Schofield's authoritative study of the New Zealand press devoted eight sniffy and mistake-riddled or written lines to truth. And at the time, it was the top-selling paper in the country. I drew up an interview list for people associated with the paper. They included staff, legal advisors, or censors, litigants, newspaper historians, and general camp followers. I also decided to approach what I might call victims of the paper, the people smeared, often cruelly and unwarrantedly. It was here that I immediately came up against the stubborn stains Iris W., Iris Wilkinson had touched on, the, the weight of baggage surrounding the paper. Marilyn Waring, outed as a lesbian by Galt in 1976, refused to talk to me. Russell Marshall was a little more, a little more mellow. He'd, Truth had called him the Red Reverend, but he, he'd kind of gotten over that. Others associated with Truth in the past, particularly those in the capital, seemed desperate to forget. I ended up practically stalking political scientist Les, and photographer Les Cleveland. I knew Les had spent nine years as a Truth reporter and sub-editor in the late 50s. I knew he'd done the, the dictionary entry on editor Robert Hogg and knew much about the paper's early years. Heaps, he'd done a lot of work, but Les wouldn't talk to me. Another stalky was the late barrister Sandra Moran, a protege of Jimmy Dunn, who she'd been a former truth censor and later a, a, a member of the INL board. She first agreed to meet, then made herself unavailable. So I was a bit taken aback at this kind of response because um, these were potentially key informants. Former censor and now employment court judge Tom Goddard, Thomas Goddard, on the other hand, agreed to meet. He chatted happily about libel suits and making changes to the front page as the paper ready to go to print. But when I probed him about the real Jimmy Dunn and his links to the military and security establishment, he talked only darkly of state secrets. Others on the periphery were happy to open up. Some appeared to see an involvement with truth and Dunn as amusing or even something of a cachet. 
Jeffrey Palmer was in this category, becoming affectionate and sentimental about Dunn, in whose office he'd worked as a law student. He named Dunn a territorial officer who'd really wanted to be a professional soldier as a significant influence on his career. I said, was, would he have been a major influence? A significant influence. <laughs> and Jeffrey said a great thing about Dunn, which I can actually almost see, see the influence. He said to me, he was hard, but I found him very clear, if you know what I mean. Some people are confused. Dunn was never confused <laughs> about anything. <laughs> a breakthrough came when I made contact with staff from the pre-Galt era. <laughs> Established journalists like um, former editor and economics correspondent uh, Bob Edlin and Fairfax ex executive Clive Lind proved less precious about Goddard's state secrets. A long-time reporter, Rosalind Lang, now living in Panama, <coughs> of course, readily opened up to Truth's dark side. She was happy, almost relieved, to share her recollections of 10 years inside, 10 years with Truth as one of its top reporters and smear merchants. And former TV reporters um, of Truth, uh, sorry, and observers of Truth, such as Spencer, Spencer Jolly and David Beetson, who went to work for TVNZ, were also quite talkative. They helped me fill in some of the background to one of Truth's most notorious stories, the 1975 think tank affair, which I cover in my last chapter. Some of you will know that in July of that year, the paper mounted the most savage in a series of attacks on Bill Such. Galt named the prominent economist, bureaucrat and alleged Russian spy as the mastermind of a plot to turn New Zealand socialist. It was just months after such as acquittal for spying in the middle of an election year that led to a National Party landslide. And remember the Cold War in 1975 was still thawing. The fall of the Berlin Wall was 14 years away. Now truth alleged that a group of experts reporting to the late Labour Prime Minister Norman Kirk were plotting to nationalise banks and insurance companies. And during 1975, the story took on the proportion of a homegrown Watergate, the story that had recently led to the downfall of a president. The think tank story came to symbolize a new era of cross-media news competition between TV networks, radio stations and newspapers. It helped give rise to an aggressive journalism that until then had largely been, been truth's domain. Truth's allegations were based on a document leaked by a senior member of the SIS to a fellow Territorial Army officer, Paul Freeman. The other commie plotters included former Labour MP Gerald O'Brien and, and senior bureaucrat Jack Lewin. Opposition leader Muldoon would use the document to great effect. Remember that, that 75 was the year of the Dancing Cossacks advertisement, the most infamous piece of election advertising in our political history, as New Zealand History Net says. <laughs> in the ads, National suggested Labour's recently introduced compulsory superannuation scheme might lead to Soviet-style communism. 
The mid-70s is remembered as a, as a buccaneering era for the secret services. It was a time when the American CIA helped discredit and oust left-leaning governments in Chile, Germany and Australia. Remember old Gough Whitlam saying, after he was ousted, maintain your rage. The think tank would embarrass the Labour government in 75, perhaps in a small way even contributed to its downfall. At the time, socialist action correspondent Keith Locke, later a Green MP, wrote, quote, the only plot uncovered has been a right-wing one involving collaboration between National Party figures, the SIS and Truth. So what, if any secrets, would I uncover 35 years after the fact? State secrets. My final chapter tells of tracking down the two key people associated with the affair. These were O'Brien and Mr Freeman, the secret squirrel in the sky blue shirt. I explain how Roger Dunn, the proprietor's son, confirmed that the SIS officer who leaked the document was his dad's next door neighbour. Don't you love New Zealand sometimes? <laughs> And when Roger Dunn had gone through his late father's papers, he'd found documents showing former SIS officers on retainer. The late George Barton QC also told me he believed Truth had published material that could only have been sourced from telephone tapping. Lewin retained Barton, who's just recently died, he was a great man, um, during such a trial for espionage in February 75. In an article entitled, Lawyer Sat In For Him, Truth described the contents of a telephone call made by Barton. Barton had rung Lewin from the Supreme Court Library telling him of the verdict. Barton assured me that no one else was present and that, his, that it is his enduring belief that, incoming, that it was un, incoming calls to Lewin that were bugged. So I was satisfied that the dots had to some extent been joined between Truth and the SIS. But what secrets did I leave out of the chapter? What ended up on the cutting room floor? I couldn't possibly tell you. <laughs> Just kidding. <clears throat> One came from my chat with Spencer Jolly, the former TVNZ journo who helped give the story legs in 75 and coined the term think tank, now working as a political a political reporter for a TV station in Queensland, Jolly, among other things, remains convinced of a plot to kill Norman Kirk. Well, we know what happened to um, Mayor Bob Harvey when he he made that um, mild claim. Well, not well. He made the claim reasonably mildly, I think. Maybe it was stronger than that. Anyway. Spencer Jolly claims dark forces took the grievously ill PM and flew him in a plane at a height where the air pressure would prove fatal. They cooked him, Spencer told me. <laughs> they cooked him. My Panamanian pal, Roz, insisted, citing impeccable sources, that the CIA was feeding information to truth. She wrote in a dozen fevered emails over one weekend, truth, quote, moved away 
from SIS and sourced from the CIA. She reckons the service put JH Dunn under surveillance at this time. She claimed SIS also monitored meetings at Patanui near Wellington in either 1973 or 1974. She claims these involved gatherings of a, quote, elite, very right-leaning group of territorial army officers, including freemen. Roz did not end there. <clears throat> she told how at the start of the Kirk government, security discovered that a hole had been made in the air conditioning duct over the cabinet room. Quote, I have theorised that it was a, a listening post for someone concerned about the Labour government policy. Others will disagree. Roz says... Her final years at Truth was like living out a Le Carre novel with Dunn playing Smiley. There were characters appearing from the shadows, playing bit parts and disappearing. She talked of, quote, action, heated discussion that involved Galt and many others. I spent days trying to make sense of this peculiar Panamanian puzzle. And believe me, there were many others like it, as I wrote this, as I, well, wrote, pieced together this story. In the end, I just went ahead and wrote what I felt could stand up, and nothing more, though there was more. The resulting manuscript was published a year ago. The book looked good. The launch was great. Really good. The reviews were generally positive. Then a month or so after publication, the son of a former Truth editor came up and threatened me with violence on a Wellington street. Based on what two separate sources had assured me, I stated in the book that his dad often fell back on the trivial and sordid. Some Truth editors would have taken this as the ultimate compliment. <laughs> his son, however, had spent his whole life as a son of an editor of Truth. He'd spent his life carrying the weight of this one-of-a-kind paper. He just could not cope with this one final slur on his late father's memory. I did point out that his dad was a muck-throwing editor of truth, not the TLS or even the Evening Post. But he walked away shouting, screaming, you've made an enemy out of me. Some stains will never fade away. Thank you.